morning, good afternoon, or good evening, listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Caroline Urban. Hi, Caroline. Hello, everyone. Hi, Brian. Hi. So just a quick uh, introduction for those new to the podcast. On the podcast, we catch up with past and present clients or advisors in the M&A space. We keep it light, fresh, informative, and of course, entertaining. Usually we wrap up in 20 minutes or so, but as the name suggests, snacking is the first order of proceedings. So Caroline, what are you munching on? I managed to get my hands on a bowl of cherries. Mm, Very healthy. I'm having an ice cream. Caroline, would you like to introduce our guest for today? We are delighted to welcome John Dawson to the show today. John is partner and heads up the creative media and technology sector at accountancy and tax advisory firm, Hayes McIntyre. John trained and qualified at Hayes McIntyre and now advises entrepreneurs and businesses of varying sizes on their growth, fundraisings and exits. I'm sure there will be many topics to cover and we look forward to delving into them. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, John, as is tradition on our podcast, what are you snacking on today? So when I was told to uh, select a snack for today's podcast, I thought I'd better try and find something unique. And with the warm weather, I put the barbecue on and bought some uh, Korean steaks, which I'm mm. going to then finally slice uh, and snack on throughout the course of the show. God, that's a Love well-deserved it. snack for the end of the day, for sure. <laughs> Um, Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I think let's jump straight in and give our listeners a bit of context as we like to do. Tell us about the John Dawson story. Where did it begin and how did you end up where you are today? I never foresaw myself having a career in accountancy. Post studying maths at University of Southampton, uh, I moved to Hong Kong for a year and worked for a global conglomerate in Hong Kong called Jardine Matheson, where I was fortunate enough to be exposed to a variety of their businesses and work in a number of different departments, spending some time in a finance department of one of their larger companies. And it was there that I met the group CFO who gave me some very solid advice, which was to come back to the UK and study for my ACA and to use that as a way to experience working in lots of different businesses. He had suggested post coming and studying my ACA at a mid-tier firm in the UK, I could then move back and and would be a perfect fit to slot into the Jardine Matheson culture. So Mm -hmm. I did exactly that and came back. He specifically said mid-tier because he felt you get a good variety of experience. So I I kind of took his advice, moved back to the UK, joined Hayes McIntyre about three weeks later, and then found that I really enjoyed it. Got married, bought a flat, had a baby, and so never moved back to Hong Kong. (laughs) Never left Hayes McIntyre either. So... I quite quickly joined the creative media and technology team and started working with a lot of fast growth scaling companies and found that I really enjoyed doing that. So continued that. And then, as you mentioned, recently took over as heading up the creative media and tech team, which is very exciting. I mean, you don't hear that that often these days, you know, it's good to see that loyalty is paid off in the end. It's really interesting as well. I I think slightly unique to our business. We have 38 partners of uh, whom 20 trained at the firm. So more mm. than 50%, which I, I assume is probably quite a high proportion compared mm. to the industry normal that I don't know what that is. But yeah, I certainly think it, it's not that common and I suspect will become less and less common as well. And so moving on to your M&A experience, we like to share some war stories here. So without naming names, um, can, can you tell us maybe a best and worst M&A deal that you've worked on? I think the general themes 
coming out of the best deals that I work on tend to be where you find that the relationship with the individuals you're involved with is very strong, be that either the company or the investor, um, depending on which side of the transaction and also the other advisors on the transaction. So I think generally speaking, the best time I have is probably where I really get on with those who we're working with. And I think it's then also the case that in those deals where we're able to add real value, again, it becomes much more enjoyable. Some of the transactions that you inevitably work on in this role, you're probably seen more as a, a tick box exercise, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to being there to really add value. So I think, you know, those, those tend to be the best ones. Caroline and I have had the pleasure of working together on an on a private deal. And I think in that specific case, the individuals involved in the deal had fairly limited MA experience. So we found we were all able to offer a lot of advice and a lot of support around structuring the deal, completing the deal. I think those are probably the, the most interesting deals we work on. I also like working on deals where the product is ultimately very exciting you know, naturally speaking, the, the time that you're vesting in understanding a business and performing due diligence on that is particularly interesting if you're excited by what it is the business does. Flip side, the worst deals, you've probably got a few common themes, one of which I mentioned already, which is where you're effectively there to tick a box rather mm. than add value. That becomes less interesting. While sometimes more straightforward, it's probably less interesting. I think unrealistic timelines as a service provider, um, we're all, we're all very used to them, (laughs) but that often adds a layer of stress, which then perhaps makes it less enjoyable or makes it more difficult to complete. And it's kind of linked to that as well as an ever moving goalpost. You know, there's some deals that I've worked on and some, which ultimately never get completed because of that, where the goalpost just continually moves and you find you end up redoing lots of the same work over and over again. You haven't been locked in a room for, you know, 48 hours, get get the deal done, those sort of deals? We've had a few Friday afternoon chats where the suggestion is that the deal needs to complete on Monday. And everyone understands what that means. It's um, never said, is it? The, the type and the size of deals that we work on, there's generally less kind of intense pressure when do you typically get involved in M&A transactions? You're probably having discussions way before the lawyers get involved. The types of deals that I work on, we can split between publicly listed stuff, capital markets transactions. I suspect we get involved at a very similar time to the lawyers. It's generally led by corporate advisors as opposed to mm. accountants. Mm. And then you generally find the nomad or corporate advisor pulls a team together at a point in the transaction when they feel like the structure is sort of there or thereabouts. On the private side, we have various uh, different types of investors that we work with. So where we're working on um, strategic acquisitions or trade sales, for example, and we're working for an existing client, which we do a fair amount of, then we're involved in those conversations from a very early stage. I suppose one of the benefits we have is we have a lot of clients who are sort of retained clients who we're talking to a lot of the time anyway. So potential acquisitions, potential targets come up in conversation. So we're often aware of some of these things happening at a very early stage and then um, are having these conversations with our clients. Are a lot of those clients audit clients and that's why you have a good insight to the business? There are a real variety of audit clients or sort of ongoing other compliance and advisory clients specifically in the listed space the ethical regulations mean that audit is very much a standalone service these days 
So we typically see clients looking for an audit firm and then an advisory firm. And that advisory firm might have lots of ongoing opportunities for work throughout the year. Whereas in the private side, yeah, certainly, you know, there's more opportunity for us to act across varying services for our current clients. If we're acting for third party investors, you know, private equity or other sort of um, investment boutiques, I would say we probably get bought in a similar time to the lawyers. We sort of get introduced once a, a deal had been discussed, perhaps around heads of terms at that sort of stage. Is that um, for those types of deals and clients, does that tend to be then to do financial DD? Yeah, that's right. It tends to be financial and tax due diligence. So to say the least, the last 18 months have been very strange. And what's, what's, what was your experience like in terms of deal flow yeah, it feels a lifetime ago, doesn't it? But I, I remember in April time, there were various um, transactions that were sort of on the cards that naturally slowed down because of everything that happened. There was one that I remember specifically that we got over line in June where we were actually acting on the sell side. So this was an ongoing client that we'd had for many years mm. who were exiting and we managed to get that one over the line. But most of the stuff that we were involved in at the time the pandemic struck um, either got put on pause and delayed or, or just kind of fell apart. Interestingly, I don't know whether it was the discussions around the vaccine program or Brexit, but both happened at a pretty similar time. And it seemed to kind of unlock this perhaps even slightly false view that suddenly there was certainty everywhere and that all the uncertainty had disappeared. I'm not sure the uncertainty has disappeared, but it certainly felt like there was this pent up demand up until, you know, right at the beginning of 2021 that was then sort of released. On the capital market side, we've probably seen more transactional work in the last six months than we had in the preceding two years. On the private side, there's certainly a feeling that there is a lot of activity either ready to happen or has kind of happened in the last couple of months. Would you say that you're, because you're in the tech sector, that maybe your sector has been very different workflow-wise in comparison to other sectors? Largely speaking, the tech sector feels like it's been pretty unaffected. You know, a lot of these businesses were able to work remotely anyway or had been working remotely. A lot are reliant on investment as opposed to revenue. So were largely unimpacted by kind of any dips in trade or a lot of this sort of stuff. Has that resulted in some strange valuations or Uh, or specifically are there, can you say there have been any deals where there was an investment round pre COVID, it was put on hold and came back and all of a sudden is worth so much more. Yeah. Certainly some of the big kind of headline deals that you see in the press at the moment, I think some of the valuations are, uh, you know, quite quite astonishing. Yeah. Over the last few years, obviously, we've seen a a change within this space. Anyway, that that a lot of valuation is driven by driven by sort of the networks that these businesses are able to generate, and there's there's a huge amount of value pinned down to sort of lifetime value of a customer and things like that, especially in the fintech space, for example, and and sort of the concept of valuing a technology business based on any kind of multiple of an accounting number anymore um, mm. seems to have just completely disappeared. So whilst I think, you know, for example, the the valuation of Revolut, which was uh, mm. announced last week, mm-hmm. seemed perhaps to the outside eye to be particularly high. I think, you know, it's difficult now because the valuation metrics used to determine some of these aren't perhaps that clear and so perhaps there are reasons, you know, why, for example, they can command a valuation based on what appears to be 
you know, relatively low levels of customers and revenues and, mm. and EBITDA. Are we, are we talking dot-com boom 2.0? <laughs> Another leading question. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's what people were saying, you know, I mean, a little bit before out my time, but, um, you know, they were saying all these companies were, you know, they were IPOing, they were going through the roof. And when you looked under the hood, there was nothing there. It does start to smell a bit the same, perhaps? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think the... Ultimately, uh, throughout the growth journey, investors are investing in businesses that they think will be worth more in the future mm. than they are now. They're not necessarily investing at valuations because they think that is what the business is worth today. And I think there's a huge amount of hope value in a lot of these mm. businesses, particularly you know, focusing on the fintech space. There's a lot of hope value associated with that. And, and there are some particularly large exits as well, which are helping to justify those values. Mm. But the true value of some of these businesses to whoever the, the end investor is going to be it has got to be questioned as to whether it's, it's ever going to be able to kind of generate the future mm. cash flows required to, to justify that. So I think we'll probably see more over the next few years as some of the um, so-called challenger banks, for example, I think will be acquired by some of the more mainstream banks um, as access to funding. Perhaps it almost becomes impossible for them. And so the only route will become an acquisition at some point. Mm. Um, and then it will be interesting to see what valuations. These large clearinghouse banks here, they've got very old legacy systems mm. and they just can't flick a switch and you know compete with the, the latest fintechs in the banking space in particular, in personal banking. So, yeah, I think you're probably right. I think there will be a few acquisitions there. Um, easier to bolt on than, than redesign your whole system. I'm curious to know what experience you have in dealing with sales that go to strategic buyers versus private equity buyers. And I suppose on, on both sides, on both the sale and buy side, maybe? Probably the majority of the deals that I've worked on on the buy side have been strategic acquisitions. Um, and on the sell side, I would say the same as well. Do you find that, that strategic buyers tend to be a bit nicer? Because <laughs> they're sort of, they, they take the view that we're going to work together as opposed to I'm just investing in this, hoping to make a return. <laughs> yes, you don't hear the term friendly deal that much, do you, when, you, um, <laughs> when, you're, <laughs> when you're working with a um, private equity? I think integration of the businesses is key in kind of strategic acquisitions and, and you see a lot of focus at the due diligence stage on how are we going to integrate these businesses. Whereas, of course, there's far less interest in that um, mm. you know, in private equity deal. It, it's very much how do we get it in, make it as lean as possible, get the right mm. management structure in place and then take it where it needs to go over the next three to five years. Yeah. Speaking of technical Asset or share sale? What what have you seen? And then similarly, completion accounts and lockbox. What have you seen? What have you preferred? You know, is there a trend either way? It's very technical, isn't it? I hope the listeners of the, this podcast are, are um, into their technical accounting, but I'll try not to go too deep. We probably see a mixture, but because of the types of deals that I've historically worked on, in answer to your second question, I think completion accounts tends to be the preferred mechanism. The only time that I would perhaps more strongly advocate a locked box approach would be where the deal is perceived to be friendly and actually the the focus is on what the consideration is 
rather than perhaps what the business value is, if that makes sense. So I suppose, you know, the consideration and the business value should always marry in a transaction, but mm. they're generally driven by one or the other. And, and you know, in a friendly deal where someone's looking to exit, perhaps the focus is on, you know, ultimately whatever that consideration is that that the seller wants to achieve and therefore it makes sense to implement some kind of locked box arrangement whereas mm-hmm. for most transactions i would get more nervous around lock box because i think completion accounts mechanism allows us to, you know to be able to work with the buyer to make sure that the deal is fair based on what was agreed at the outset mm-hmm. no I, I couldn't agree more with lock box in terms of you know that certainty and, you know, if a seller wants a clean exit, then that's that's certainly the the easier way. Probably three or four years ago, I was seeing lockbox a lot more often. Now I'd say 90% of deals are completion accounts. Asset or share sale? Can't get away from that question. I, li- I like the cleanness of a share sale because it's very obvious what is being transferred from one party to the other. Basically everything. The downside is to those buyers, if you're if you're buying everything and you, perhaps you don't know what everything is, depending on how mm-hmm. you know far back you go into history of that business and, and potentially what could come out of it. So the due diligence, in my view, becomes far more important on a share, you know, on a share purchase, but I think it's a cleaner way to do it. Mm-hmm. It does create some more complexities around accounting when you when you think about the value of what you're acquiring and, and there being off balance sheet assets generally speaking things like brands or customer lists are not held on the balance sheet and and therefore when you're going through an acquisition there needs to be some thought given on the value of those and and how Mm -hmm. to account for that going forward on an asset sale i presume it's more in some ways more difficult as a lawyer because you're trying to identify exactly what the assets are and exactly what the trade is and and what's moving between the two for an accountant it, it, it doesn't get that much more complex or that much more difficult i just think it's cleaner probably to go for a share sale i think that kind of leads us to the nice last question what advice do you have for sellers looking to sell their business i think the first piece of advice is that if you are in a business that you know you are going to want to exit from at some point in the future then the importance of taking that seriously from an early stage i just kind of i I cannot emphasize enough and what i mean by that is every decision that is made within the business considering what the implications are on a potential exit in the future so if there are transactions which might feel like they're a little bit gray or a bit close to the line or particularly when you're thinking about kind of related parties and businesses things like that if you know that you're looking to sell at some point in the future just consider what the implications are now because it's often from my experience these types of things that come out later in the day that then either really damage the value of the business or even in some cases you know make it make it more difficult to sell or or prevent transactions from going ahead and I think the other thing to talk about is what a seller wants to achieve when they sell their business do they want complete financial freedom do they want to stay involved in the business in any capacity I think it's good to think about that now rather than wait until you're having specific conversations with potential buyers my other advice is get some good accountants and good lawyers (laughs) of course (laughs) what a cheap plug (laughs) um i think that's almost it for today so john thank you so much it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show just before we finished we have enough time to do our rapid fire round so you will have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as you can in that time just say the first thing that comes to mind. So, John, in one word or phrase only, 
On your mark. Get set. Where did you go to school? Dr. Chalner's. Favorite food? Dim sum. If you were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, dead, or fictional, who would you invite and why? Bradley Wiggins, Tiger Woods. Oh, I've, I've set myself up here, haven't I? <laughs> um, and who else would I invite? Muhammad Ali. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> let's go with Muhammad Ali. That's the, that's <laughs> got to be the most stereotypical answer, hasn't it? On this, uh, on this. Yeah, on this. I should have prepared for that. I should have known something like that was going to come. Anyway, sorry. Sixty seconds. Sorry. Strangest place you have visited. Um, Macau. Favorite movie. Probably something very cheesy like Die Hard or anything with Jason Statham in. <laughs> um, finally, if you were down to your last £10, where would you invest them? I, I, um... You're going through your list of clients. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have to be careful, yeah. <laughs> Need to be more specific next time. It's sixty seconds for the whole question, not just sixty seconds per question. Sorry, I know. I'm. I'm. I know. I'm. I'm completely waffling. Um, I was <laughs> short Tesla. Short Tesla. Okay, interesting. John, thank you so much for your time and participating in MBM's MA Snack and Chat podcast. So that's it for today, listeners. Thank you for joining us with our chat with John Dawson. Join us next time when Caroline and I will be joined by another special guest where we will chat and snack all things M&A. Goodbye. Goodbye.